Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditch Witch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television himself, Mr. Aaron Martin. How are you, sir? I, I am doing well. We have Kurt Dove, PAA Angler. We're going to be going on a journey all the way up into the North Country near Walker, Minnesota. Uh, mm-hmm. Take advantage of some of that great fishing we had up there. And then a little later, Steve, we're going to have Mark Tucker as talking about really little things that can make a big difference. So it's going to be a good show. Oh, it's always great to hear from those two guys. Let's rock. Get it like that, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing today. Oh, dude, did you see that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. (laughs) Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? That's full contact fishing right there. You're listening to The Egg, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Aaron, I heard you got out and did a little fishing this week. I did. You know, my sister actually came in town and uh, brought my nephew in, so enjoyed some time with them, but uh, had a little time on the Sunday, I think it was, and so mm-hmm. I decided to get a late launch after they left and got on the water about 10 o'clock, and you know, it was one of those times, Steve, to where I didn't really have an agenda, you know, it was just more about getting out on the water, and you know, it turned out to be a really good day, I've got to tell you. Getting about springtime out there, is it, or are you still fishing winter patterns? No, well, you know, I, I would have thought that it would have been a little more more winter pattern, but uh, of course, the, the day was pretty warm. It got out to, I would say, right around in the mid-70s, you know, which feels pretty good on the angler's perspective. Right. doesn't have a whole lot of effect on the fish, but uh, the wind, it was bluebird skies, you know, post-frontal system, and I started out bank fishing, just throwing the, you know, the typical jerk bait and crankbait, that type of thing, but uh, where I ended up catching them was one of my favorite ways, and that's picking up that jig and, and going to work flipping docks. Flipping docks, and so what was your water temperature? Water temperature started out at right around 50.5, and then by the end of the day, uh, got up to about 52. So there wasn't a tremendous amount of change, but I think the key was that, you know, we had that those high skies with that sun, uh, clear water, you know, we didn't have a lot of wind starting out. And uh, so anytime that you can take advantage of, of the, that shade and those ambush points on the corners of those docks, you know, believe it or not, Steve, I was actually catching them in about four to eight feet of water is where the majority of the bites came from. And, you know, just throwing that, that small finesse jig, five sixteenths ounce tipped with, uh, you know, just a green pumpkin trailer that, that resembled, obviously, the, the crayfish. And every, almost every single bite came on the fall. So that meant... You know, they were holding up under that capsulated foam, suspended, and boy, did I have a great time. Well, man, it's that time of year. You, you're out there in 70 degree, and did you see we've got a little snow in our forecast in a few days? Oh, I know. Well, and, and you know, we've talked so many times, Steve, about this time of year having those violent weather patterns. And that's really why, at the end of the day, of course, I always go back, and I'm, I'm taking uh, notes and, and writing down what's going on throughout the course of the day so I can remember that later. But after I, I kind of reviewed those notes, it was interesting to see that the majority of them came on the steeper banks, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, during these violent weather patterns that's taking place, if you have a steeper bank, the fish, all they have to do is move up and down in the water column versus, you know, being, if they're on a flatter-style uh, bank, they've got to swim so far out to achieve that same comfort. And, you know, those crayfish, they're loosening up from from the rocks. 
They're becoming more plentiful, and we all know, of course, I, I can't speak for a bass because I'm not familiar with their taste buds, but I can tell you from experience, <laughs> they sure like crayfish when it comes to a forage. Well, they tell me crayfish are their favorite food, but I've just never really gotten that firsthand information. <laughs> but so. uh, but anyway, you know, that's common here in the Ozarks, and I know it's not a lot for a lot of fishermen, but in places where you have these bluffs and you've got, you know, extreme depth change in one place, uh, that's a good place to look for these Asian fish, and I know you've had some success, a lot of success, even in some tournaments fishing that way here on Table Rock. Yeah, you know, I have. And my, and my rule of thumb is when, you know, bait fish obviously are very plentiful, uh, specifically being the threadfin shad in the lake that we're speaking of now. But I think that if you get those bright, sunny days, you know, the fish are looking to try and protect their eyes, something that's comfortable. I believe that they're going to be more bottom-oriented and more structure-oriented uh, so that they can create that security. And so, therefore, that's kind of why I went to that jig. Instead of uh, sticking with that, that jerk bait, you know, and, and the crankbait style that's, that's higher in the water column, which really... You know, if you think about a suspending jerkbait, they've got to be looking up. Ninety-nine percent of the fish I've ever caught, you know, they're coming on mm-hmm. up to hit the hit the bait. Um, whereas I think in those high sky conditions, you know, I, I think it's advantageous to pick up something that's going to be a little more focused uh, towards the bottom. And then in this case, like I said, they were hitting it on the fall. They were still suspended, but that five sixteenths ounce jig falls at a slower rate. Um, and so therefore it doesn't come crashing down past them, they still have the opportunity when it gets in the strike zone that they can reach out and just grab it as it goes by. Well, did you did you catch any on the jig, the Steve jig? You know, I, I started out uh, earlier of the day before I picked up. Oh, to come just on, the, Aaron, man. you got to get the Steve jigs working. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I did. I caught some that, that uh, were not keepers, but I did catch three. And mm-hmm. what I was doing there, Steve, instead of, you know, we started out earlier setting over top of them, fishing that jig vertically on those hair jigs that, that we had made that resemble the bait fish. But um, this time I actually, I rigged it up like a drop shot to where uh, had a leader that was about, oh, 14 inches, um, kept it up off the bottom, and would cast, make a cast to the bank, and then just slowly drag it up. I caught some, some short fish, you know, 14 and a half, 14 mm-hmm. and three quarters, but uh, the definite deal that day was the, you know, the traditional crayfish-style jig. Well, man, I tell you what, it's just tough to listen to you catching these fish. I actually had a little flu this week myself, so uh, I get to read about some fish. Yeah, well, I put it like this. I'm glad you're feeling better. And, you know, and speaking of which, you know, you saying that comment kind of opened the door for me to uh, give you a little grief. You know, the, the Bass Edge newsletter came out Monday, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you made a comment in there about me not wanting to quit fishing. And I kind of remember, <laughs> I think, as maybe even this show this weekend that, that just aired uh, with Kurt Dove, you know, you and I got out on the water there. And uh, I, I remember somebody that wasn't too eager about quitting either. <laughs> well, you know, it, I was talking about a concept there, and I just had to put a name and a face. Oh, on okay, it. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll gladly take one for the team then Steve, you know just to make sure that uh now the vision i had in my mind was in south carolina somewhere where we had all some it was just getting dark 30 and it's kind of summertime and so you know it's it's getting nine o'clock but no that's no. No, that's all, all good fun we yeah fun. and all kidding aside i mean there is a tremendous amount of truth to that because it, that's 
the the hard thing to explain about our sport it is so addictive you know when you get out mm-hmm. there and 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 even if if you're having a a rough day or or struggling maybe not getting quite the results that you anticipated for there's you know there's just that constant yearning it's almost like gambling you know like man i can turn this around i i don't want to go mm-hmm. in, in on a bad <laughs> note but then if you are catching him you know the opposite is true as well you want to stay out there and you want to continue so it's it's a it's a winless situation well, Aaron, I see that uh, you've got the pretty good anecdote on your schedule for that snow that's coming here to Missouri next week. Absolutely. Guess where I'm heading. I am going to <laughs> Texas Motor Speedway uh, for yeah, the next yeah. Cup race, April 3rd through the 5th. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, you know, I went to that one last year. and We had such a good time. Of course, you know, I spent uh, many, many years in Dallas. And, of course, we did the whole forward stockyards and Billy Bob's and Joe T. Garcia's and... Uh, I'm going to have to uh, turn you on to a few neat things to do while you're in full work down there. Sure. Well, I I can't wait. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you've got the, the restaurants all scoped out to point me in the right direction. <laughs> well, you're Mr. Mexican food, too, so, so you, you're going to love it down there. And we had such a good time. Uh, you know, we went last year and uh, were there uh, on the grounds with our good friends over at O'Reilly's. And, of course, they were the sponsor of the Bush Race, and they had me and uh, Matt Wilson, our photographer, up to their suite to watch uh, the race and it was my first nascar experience and they even had us down in the pit and took us on a little tour and i i knew nothing about nascar and i just i found all that fascinating so uh, you you should have a good time i'll tell you what another thing i remember is i burned all the skin off my nose last year because <laughs> I, I left winter up here and went down there and got and forgotten my sunblock so uh, well i i got plenty of that in 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 stock i should say but yeah i mean if if any of our listeners uh there of course i know we have a lot of them that's going to be there in texas and you know nascar is one of those things where they pull from multiple states but if anybody happens to be at the race come by and see us because i'm gonna have all kinds of bass edge stuff love the opportunity to uh to talk with you for a while and we'll get you hooked up with some great gear and we'll be there at the o'reilly auto parts uh booth inside of uh of the park there and looking forward to seeing everybody that comes by well, I know you'll have uh, a lot of neat stuff, including some T-shirts. I want to remind people while we're talking about T-shirts that we have a little deal going on. If you spend 40 or more dollars on Bass Edge merchandise, we're going to throw in a free Fishing on the Edge T-shirt. Well, there you go. That's that's a pretty good deal. Uh, get that for free. And, of course, I'm sure that's while supplies last. I know those things have been kind of going pretty quick. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Steve, I'll throw you a little plug. So you can buy one of your books and uh, maybe get that electronics DVD or one of the season DVDs, and you'll set up and, and have you a free T-shirt to go with it. Well, see, now that's, that's the question I have for you there, Aaron. Are we talking with or without tax here? My book is 1995. <laughs> <laughs> If you bought two of my books, would you get a T-shirt? Yeah, we're we're talking about gross sale now, Steve. <laughs> but I will tell you, you know, on the books that are sold, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to stand good for the cost of the T-shirt. So, oh, great, <laughs> great. I'm still trying to get me some of those T-shirts. Of course, I know as folks can imagine, you know, we're we're trying to move these T-shirts because we got new ones coming out. That's right. But uh, some of the guys have put a few of these back uh, as kind of collectors' items and. Uh, it, this year's shirt was by far our most popular shirt, of course, uh, you know, especially with some of our female viewers. Oh, did, yeah. did, did you recognize that? I had not recognized that. And when, where are you going with this? Is this a true story or is this more of a... a well, no, just some of, the pe- okay. some of the women I talked to, they thought the uh, shirt had a really a really good look to it. I'm staying away from that with a 10-foot pole because I know you're just waiting for me to make a comment so that you can just really take me to the ringer, So Come on, man, set me up. Yeah. I've got Aaron's picture uh-uh. on it. Uh-uh. I can remember one young lady 
ladies who wanted that particular teacher in uh-huh. your picture. Okay, don't. I think we have another topic we got to talk about. Don't we, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> we need to get to work here. We're rambling on. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I tell you what, let's do that. Right, we can have fun on the way back. But I tell you what, let's go listen to hear what Kurt Dove has to say. Sounds good. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the toe and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 toe and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The toe and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zon, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. All right, welcome back, and we are on The Edge, and this week's Angler Spotlight is one of BASS's elite pro anglers and also Bass Edge's very own pro staff, and that is Mr. Kurt Dove. Kurt, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Edge. Thanks, Aaron. It's glad to be back. I appreciate it. Hey, you know, we uh, we had the opportunity to do something that I thought was pretty special, and that was uh, really head into the North Country in Minnesota. I can't say enough about the time that we had up there, but I'll let you kind of jump in and really set the stage for the listeners and, and kind of give your two cents on uh, kind of the experience. Well, like you said, it was a great time. We had a great experience up there in the in the North Woods uh, near Walker, Minnesota, and and Leech Lake and the Woman Chain. You know, fishing those natural lakes up in in the North Country are something I don't get a whole lot of chance to experience. And you know, I can kind of relate a little bit to it. You know, back in New York and, and some of the areas I fished there. But boy, to be up here in Minnesota and experience this was was just awesome. Loved it. Well, and you, you know, you bring up two things there. One is from the standpoint of of being in Minnesota. Really, this was a situation to where you or I, up until that point in time, had not actually caught a bass out of the state of Minnesota. That's right. That's right. This was my my first experience catching a bass here in Minnesota. And catch a bunch of them we did. I mean, it was it was awesome experience. Well, and, and, you know, transitioning that into really setting the stage for kind of the day that we had on the water, really we, we did gather some information from the standpoint of, you know, Jay McNamara, Dr. Jay McNamara, who's obviously on in the zone and, uh, you know, oftentimes here on the edge. You know, we put in a phone call to him and say, hey, what could we expect? We did a little bit of research. I know you did some on the Internet and got some maps, but uh, really nothing out of the ordinary. We were more or less, we put the boat on the water and put the trolling motor down. Sure, yeah. And, you know, coming from the south, you're, you're used to fishing a lot of reservoirs and, and those types of things. Coming up here in the north, you know, you're really dealing with a lot of natural lakes, and that's what we were dealing with here. So you've got you've to look at the different styles of lakes and, and what a natural lake offers versus what a reservoir offers and really kind of tune in to what you're going to experience. Uh, like you said, doing the research before you get here and understanding what type of lake you're going to really pinpoint some some things that we thought would be happening when we got out there in the water and uh, gave us a, a good direction to start in before we really started figuring out what was going on. But when we launched the boat, of course, we weren't clueless. We had an idea of some things that should be going on up here and put those things to test and, and really just kind of picked our way apart and, and got to look at and learn the lake while we were fishing and getting bites and getting clues as to putting the puzzle together. Speaking of natural lakes, you know, because obviously there there are several natural lakes uh, across the country, uh, certainly a lot of those, you know, it's a land of 10,000 lakes or the state of 10,000 lakes. Um, how does a natural lake compare 
to, let's say, a man-made reservoir? Well, really, the way I look at it, Aaron, is, you know, you have a reservoir and, and a lot of current generation there. And, and, of course, you have some current in natural lakes as well. But in a reservoir, you have a lot of offshore structure, a lot of structure that the fish get on, whether it be ledges or brush piles, things of that nature. When you come to a natural lake, um, really, generally, you have a lot of weeds in, in natural lakes. And the fish tend to tend to congregate around the outskirts and in the shallows, especially when you get up here in, in the north and you get a lot of pike and muskie. The, the fish really tend to stay in, in some heavier cover and get into the vegetations because they're, they're being preyed upon by those other fish. So when you're in this in a natural lake situation, I, I feel like it's a little bit easier to pattern the fish just because they seem to stay really in a very small percentage of the water. And, you know, you had mentioned, uh, I think actually during the show, as well but you know current how you get into a man-made reservoir and and current is obviously controlled uh potentially by the department of natural resources or possibly the corps of engineers you don't have that luxury you know in a natural lake right you know interesting enough you still do have current in a natural lake it's just not at the at the level that you have in in a reservoir uh in a natural lake of course you're dealing a lot with you know little rivers and portages up in this part of the country that connect all these little lakes and that's that's the drainage of the water flow the drainage you know coming down from from the snow and, and the rains and those types of things so you do have some current but it's not at the level where it's positioning the fish as much as on a reservoir and, and putting them on that offshore type structure and getting them away from the shallows and the bank. Also, you know, you're dealing a little bit, you know, being up north with the with the water temperatures don't get as warm. These fish here, they only have a couple of months to really feed heavy. You know, you're looking at probably May through through September are really the prime months for fishing up here. And, you know, before you know it, the spawn doesn't happen until you know, early July up here in Minnesota, and then it's post-spawn, and then they're feeding up for the fall. So it's a short time frame, and these fish stay shallow all throughout the year when they're feeding like that, just because the water temperature stays really cool. You know, and, and, and speaking of, of feeding in the, in the short feeding period that they have, uh, hard to believe, but, you know, the weather was absolutely, I mean, I'm probably the most comfortable I've been in ever fishing in the summertime, but we were there, uh, it was actually in July, and we were fishing a post-spawn situation. But eating they were. Yes, they were. It was great, first of all, to to escape that the hot heat, you know, from the south and, and really get up here and really enjoy some weather and, and just be able to sit outside without, you know, air condition or heat or, or whatever it is that, that we, we normally use this time of year to stay comfortable and, and just be comfortable being outside. So it was really nice uh, to get up here for a few days and, and really feel that, that comfort level. You know, and, and in our, I guess, our discussions leading up to uh, kind of you and I's conversations and, and the research, you know, that we had gained from Jay and, and through the, the Internet, things like that, uh, we more or less just took ideas and, and past experiences from other lakes and said, okay, you know, we know there's vegetation. We know that there should be some sort of at least minimal topwater bite going on right and also we had you know some flipping bites and really what ended up transpiring was the you know that topwater bite was really the predominant bite that, that came through it really was you know we, we dealt with a lot of different little conditions um you know we had a little bit of of uh top water stuff and, and, and nice matted vegetation that, that we were able to fish you know something something a little bit different than both of us have ever fished really with the uh rice mm-hmm. and and then um you know, working, you know, the wind started to pick up a little bit and we started moving away from the top water and, and working the flipping a little bit. And then, 
and then before you knew it, you know, we were we were chucking a spinnerbait around to catch a few fish. So so we really you know took the conditions and what the lake gave us based on a lot of our past experiences that we've had throughout all of the United States, and and really applied them the same way as we would at any lake that we had never seen before. And, and we were just able to generate success. We had two anglers out there working, you know, a couple different baits to really find out which ones were working best. And really, we, we caught them on just about everything. We, we, you know, we did. And, and one of the things, though, that I, I do think, well, the, there was a lot of similarities there, you know, when we spoke about, and we, I know we touched on this in the show, but when fishing vegetation, you really have to more or less fish that just like you would any other type of structure or topography. You know, if you're fishing a lake that has a lot of docks, you know, you got to look for the niches. If you're fishing, uh, you know, basically the, the shoreline, look for the points, things like that. Because we did not get bites, you know, just running straight down the bank, you know, chucking the frogs across all the vegetation. You're exactly right. You know, we, we ended up looking at, you know, having little boat lanes and, and little points and, and isolated pieces of cover or, or pieces of cover that were more in a cluster. Um, so, so all those different little things, you know, those those high, uh, we use that, that niche word, uh, good target areas or, mm-hmm. or high percentage areas um, that, that really helped us zone in and, you know, be putting our baits in, in places where we really thought the fish lived, not just meandering down the bank. Right. And, and you know, talking about bait specific, uh, you were using more, of the hollow body frog, I was using more of the of the swimming frog. Talk a little bit about you know a. I know we did that because we wanted to you know more or less test to see which uh, a try and target two different styles of, of fish. But talk ab- about why that you pick and why you prefer a hollow body you know in really thick matted vegetation. Well, the reason I I like it so much is it's a slower moving bait. Um, when you when you're dealing with heavy vegetation, the fish are, are really looking at the bait when they strike, unless they strike it off the, the edge of the vegetation. But when they're striking it in the middle of the vegetation, typically they're not seeing very much, if any, of the bait. What they're seeing is just a shadow, or they're seeing some movement on top of the surface. So that hollow body bait is really a slower moving bait. You know, you twitch, twitch, pause, twitch, pause. Whereas whereas the other types of of frogs that you can use. Um, you know, the swimming type frog. Right, kind of like the one I used. Exactly. Those frogs are more of a reaction type bite. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that proved to be true because that, that pause or that stationary or static positioning over top of the, those really, really thick uh, rice beds. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is we actually had so many strikes and so many fish that, unfortunately, the viewers didn't get to see them all. Of course, they're going to be in the, you know, the DVD. But the thing that we noticed was when I would bring that swimming frog across, I don't know if you remember, but there was one particular time when I was bringing the, you know, the swimming frog across the bed, and, uh, you know, there was this this fish that had eyeballs the size of quarters that came through, and literally it just could not get a bead on it. Right. Well, you know, I think those those types of fish, you know, th- that fish is, is biting because of the reaction. Um, you know, we had a couple of situations where you'd get a bite on on the faster reaction moving frog, and and then I'd try and back it up with the slower moving frog, or we'd try and back it up with a craw, and and a lot of times we just couldn't get that fish to hit something a little bit slower. So the reason they were biting was just because of the reaction situation. So just like we talked about earlier, you know, we're throwing two different styles of baits. You, you have the the hollow body frog that's slow, really a more of a feeding type reaction, and the reason we're throwing it slow is because we're really targeting those fish that are in the middle of the mat really trying to get them to come through something because they see something moving up there not because they see the bait itself and then the other style of bait with the reaction type strike so you know we're trying to use both of them together and um, you know there's plus and minuses to each one you know none of them are foolproof that they you, you catch every fish that bites all the time but but certainly you've got to be able to utilize both of them 
and, and try and use one at the right conditions at the right time. How important do you think, you know, one of the things that we didn't do was an ex- experiment a lot with color. We really focused more of our testing, I guess, on uh, kind of presenting both styles. Uh, and, and speaking of top water here, you know, in particular, mm-hmm. but we really focused on presenting the styles versus, you know, swapping up on the colors. In your opinion, based upon that style of fishing that we were doing, how important is that color? I don't, I don't think it's very important. You know, some people get into the, you know, they like a black frog or a white frog. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with some confidence. And, and there may be a time when, you know, they might eat a white one versus a black one or a black one versus a white one based on the silhouette and the sky, you know, or, or the time of day, you know, or maybe early morning, midday, you know, different light conditions. But, um, you know, we, we kept getting strikes and, and uh, we, we were catching fish throughout some of our missed strikes. So, you know, I think our color selection was was good. You know, we were getting the bite. We were trying to put something together. And really, when you just have a couple hours to, to make something happen, you, you've got to go with what you've got confidence. And I think that's one of the key things. We talk about that a lot. And you know, Well, and, and I would agree. I mean, you know, when I look at it, if you look at or consider and, and, and looking at the footage, obviously, even going back now, a lot of that stuff that you really couldn't even see through it was i think it was more the disturbance on top of the water as as what it had to do with you know actually visually seeing the shape the silhouette you know or the color of the bait exactly and and that's why i think you know in this situation it was a non-factor and, and in other situations it it could be a factor but uh you just got to look at the situation and go with your instincts you know we, we we talked a little bit about that as well you know at that time whereas you know when you're fishing somewhere new you've got to go with something that you've got confidence in if you see something that looks fishy or you see something you think that that fish will live in you've got to go over there and fish it and look at it and and same way with the baits you know you've got to fish something that you think the fish like because you've had success on it in the past and and if you if you fail with those style of baits then then at that time change but but our experience in in this uh particular situation i mean we were getting good bites and man it was was just a great time it was and another factor i think to our success and and this goes really anywhere in the nation was the braided line considering how far we were casting and but also just the amount of vegetation that we were having to bring those fish out of yeah you know again this is something that you know i know neither of us had experience with fishing the the rice and uh it was thick stuff. I mean, you know, I fished a lot of thick things in, in t- my time. You know, water chestnuts and milfoil and matted milfoil. And, and that stuff can get wrapped up around your rod and, and you need braided line. But there was no doubt if we did not have braided line and utilize that in this situation, we would have lost a ton of fish that, that we hooked up with. And uh, we were able to hold those fish with that, you know, line stretch being very negligible and, and be able to force them out of there. And, and, you know, speaking of how thick that rice was, I know... Um, you know, the the style of that hollow body frog that you were going because of the, of the way that it sets, it comes through that rice a lot better. One of the things that I noticed that if I was not coming with the grain, because what happens is that, you know, those stalks of that rice grow up and then it kind of lays over. So you have these long blades of, the, of this rice stalk, you know, that was kind of making a right. canopy. Mm-hmm. If I was not bringing that with the grain of, of the way that that was laying, I mean, it was, it was pretty much uh, an act of futility as far as trying to make a cast. Right, and I think a lot of people overlook that in, in any type of, of vegetation, whether it's rice or milfoil or, or even pads. You know, if you've got wind that's blowing something a certain way, um, it's better to fish with it. I mean, it just comes through it a lot, a lot easier. You're able to make a better presentation. And when you get hooked up, it's easier to pull that fish, you know, with with the vegetation or with whatever it is that you're fishing against, how, how the wind's got a position. You know, in our last closing minute here, Kurt, one of the things that we 
have not discussed, but uh, just, you know, curious to hear your thoughts on. I was really shocked at the, at the water clarity. You know, I knew that the water was going to be clear, but then you throw on top of how shallow we caught those fish right. in that clear water. Was that, was that shocking to you? You know, it really wasn't. And I think it was just based on some past experiences that I've had. You know, um, I actually just uh, came from um, upstate New York just, just last week before I flew out here to, to Minnesota to work on this project. The fish are always shallow on natural lakes. At least that's my experience. There's always some shallow fish, and, and those are some of the fish that we targeted and that, that we really had a, a good time catching a bunch of them. But, you know, we could see five, six foot down. These fish were in a foot and a half, two and a half feet of water. I mean, it was gin clear, and, and they were right up there, right in the cover, and I think that's the key. As, as long as you've got cover around, it doesn't matter how clear the water is, you can catch fish out of it. Well, and, and no question, you know, um, talking about the shallow fish, and, and one final thought is, uh, you know, of course, that was only one of probably several patterns that was going on. Uh, you know, the chances are there was probably a deep bite going on. Sure. Uh, we were having a lot of fun. But but the other thing, just all the subspecies, you know, the walleye, the, the muskie, the northerns, uh, uh, what a great time. But uh, unfortunately, speaking of time, we are out of it, and uh, we need to get on down the road. But thank you so much for being part of the Edge. Any closing thoughts or that before we get out of here? Well, you know, I just like to say that that uh, you know it was a great time, you know, fishing this deal again in Bass Edge, and and just make sure you go to BassEdge.com and check out all the great information and videos that they have available to you to to learn about bass fishing and and uh, just general bass fishing education. And certainly, if you have any questions uh, for Kurt, uh, go to the Ask the Pro sections, get those to him, and uh, he will be happy to respond. In the meantime, Kurt, best of luck. Look forward to it next time, and uh, we'll be talking to you in the near future. Thanks. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller. Backhoe. Stump grinder. And tool carrier ever made. The Zahn. The revolution is here. Hi, this is Pam Bolton and you're listening to The Edge. Aaron, I love listening to these interviews because it just kind of takes you back to, you know, months ago and the warm Minnesota sun and such a neat place. That little lake we fished, Inguadona, and all the rice and the fish, man, that, what a great, the eagles, man, what a great place that was. Well, it was, you know, and the town, Walker, had such, you know, I hate to use the, the word charm, but it, but it really did, you know, and, and, and staying there at Hiawatha, uh, right there on Leech Lake, I mean, what a place, you know, those those log cabins and, and all the trees mm-hmm. and, you know, having that swim-up beach that was right there, being able to go out on the deck when we ate of a night and just kind of listen to the loons and that. And, you know, Steve, I can remember because we were actually, when we headed up there, uh, the unique thing about this year, if you think about it, we actually got to cross the Mississippi River that was essentially the size of, of a creek or a, a ditch, really. Mm-hmm. And then later in the year, of course, we were all the way down uh, at the Atchafalaya. Uh, so we really got to see both ends of that, that waterway. And that was one of the unique things, too, that I remember, let alone the tremendous fishing that we experienced, you know, fishing that rice grass and, and the top water and, and getting on, on those fish. Well, you know, it's just always great to do something different. And, and the rice grass was something 
that I had not been around. I knew you guys hadn't either. You know, I remember the way the rice grass lays over sideways, it makes this sort of mat for you guys that, that haven't seen that out there. And when the fish blow up, even when, like when the, if, if they miss the bait, uh, when we're fishing a lot of topwaters and frogs and, and whatnot there, it just leaves this perfect little hole in the rice grass. It's so cool, and I hope everybody saw the show because I know we had a, you know, we had a few of those in there. Well, and no, you're right. And, and the thing about the rice grass is because of the direction that it lays over, a lot of times how you want to present the bait is with the grain, so to speak, because right. as it lays over, you've got to bring that as the grass lays over. Otherwise, if you try and bring it against the grain, your bait basically digs in to those the leaves and the, the things like that, and it pulls that grass up, and you can't get your bait to work properly. The other thing is, too, Steve, remember that wild rice is a protected forage or protected mm-hmm. habitat because it's so critical to the waterfowl. And that's another thing that, when you think about it, not only is it great mm-hmm. habitat, you know, for the bass to get up there and, and seek out shelter and cover and security, but it provides, because of the canopy, it's cooler water underneath, which we all know that holds more oxygen because of it being cooler water. The plant itself produces oxygen, and mm-hmm. then uh, in turn, in the fall, you're able to to go out there and. Um, you know, provide a habitat for the waterfowl as well. When I think of Minnesota, I think of smallmouth bass and then the other toothy critters, the muskies in the, in the pike. <laughs> yeah. But the quality of the largemouth bass, you know, we did two Minnesota shows this year, and the quality of the largemouth bass up there and their aggressiveness to bite, you know, I, I wonder if it's not a seasonal thing where they've just got a, a shorter eating season, so they just chow down all the time. Well, I think you're right. I mean, we know that that bass are a cold-blooded species, and all that that means is that their mood and their metabolism is going to be directly influenced by the environment, the water temperature which they find themselves in. So when that water temperature does creep up, that mercury rises, you know, like you said, I mean, they know it's time to go. They're going to, you know, ingest as many calories as what they possibly can to store up for those hard winters that they see. But you certainly can't tell that that is a shorter window by some of the quality fish that they're showing in those lakes. The land of 10,000. Lakes. That means we can schedule another shoot for up there, and there's plenty of lakes to fish. We're not we, doing we could do a bass edge show probably every day of the week <laughs> up there, and never fish the same waters twice. And you know, the other thing that I I, I think when you look at up there is a lot of those lakes are natural lakes. And, of course, we talked about this in the interview with Kurt, but just how the bass stage differently in a natural lake um, versus one that is a man-made and actually has current and generation mm-hmm. and things like that. I found that to be very unique as well. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm anxious to get back up there. If you'll remember, you know, we had good luck. We had good, sunny, beautiful days, and we just caught the fool out of the fish. But the day that we had a little time to spend in town, it rained and it was all nasty, and I never got to go on the beach. <laughs> and it did at Hiawatha Beach Resort there. They've got this cool beach, so I, I, I need to get back to the beach, man. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a beach guy. Yeah, I grew up in Galveston. Guy. Yeah, kind of Jimmy Buffett, <laughs> little flavor there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we've got a listener question, Eric. We do. Well, who is that from? Well, it's from Mike. I like this question. I think I asked this question when I was young, but uh, I noticed that when you and Mike Webb were using baitcasters, and he's talking to you, Aaron, that you both use right-handed reels. But when you switch to a spinning reel, you both use left-handed reels. What's with that? Just a personal choice? I reel both right-handed, and it just seems comfortable. Mike. That, you know, that's a great observation on Mike's part. And, um, you know, it really caused, when he presented this question, really caused me to kind of think about that a little bit more. And a, a lot of it is just growing up at a very young age, 
you develop habits and that is just one of the habits uh, of course we all know that spinning reels can be you can switch the handle from right mm -hmm. to left however when I crappie fished and fish ponds and use the ultralights it was always on the left hand side so that's what I became mm -hmm. comfortable with now on the bait cast situation it would be more efficient to either a learn how to pitch and cast with my left hand so that I don't have to switch mm -hmm. hands and go back, you know, switch it from right to left because what is happening there is I'm actually losing some valuable time uh, mm -hmm. by having to make that transition and possibly even, you know, detecting strikes because something can happen, as we know, once that bait hits the water, you make that transition from right to left hand, right. um, you, you can lose a little bit. But right. Or the other avenue would be to reel right-handed. However, just based out of habit and what I have confidence in, uh, I like to set the hook and hold the rod in my left hand, and I like to reel right-handed. So it's none other, Mike, to answer your question outright, other than just personal preference and habit that I formed. And uh, it would be definitely something worth my time to spend a, a little yeah. bit of time investigating and see if I can't, you know, learn how to pitch that bait. As well, that's actor. very that's very interesting that you said that because an outdoor writer friend of mine, a guy named Barry St. Clair, who some people might know, he does hold the uh, state record for bass in Texas has made that switch. He's a right-handed guy, but he's made that switch for the very reason that, that you spoke about, for efficiency. But when I saw this question, I started thinking about it, and I'm almost 20 years older than you are, and I was trying to think back, and I'm not sure about this, Aaron, but I don't think you could buy reels with the handles on the other side when they first came out right. in the very beginning. And I think as you come along, you learn to use what's there. Because think about it, you do see a few people using a left-handed reel, uh, left-handed baitcaster, but not many, way less people that are really left-handed. So I tell Mike, do what's comfortable, man. It, it doesn't matter. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it, bottom line is that you're, you're exactly right. It doesn't matter, and that's just one of the things that I have confidence in. And, and like I said, I mean, I grew up, when I first entered into bass fishing, you know, Lake of the Ozarks and flipping docks, that was one of the things that was stressed and stressed and stressed by one of my mentors. <laughs> and so I became so proficient with being able to skip those baits up under the docks and in between those little bitty gaps in the capsulated foam. And it's just hard for me to get away yeah and i think it's just like so many other things in fishing you know do what makes you feel comfortable that's how you're going to be the most successful and that's how you're going to enjoy your fishing so you know if you want a real left-handed real left-handed learn to do it well learn to do it consistently and you're going to be uh, the same fisherman as if you did it another way yeah you're right Stephen. And, and mike thanks for the question and uh, look forward to hearing from you again in the near future well mike we appreciate that good to hear from you stay in touch with us but aaron i'm anxious to hear uh, what my old mark tucker said he can talk about little things that make a big difference there we go i'm looking forward to it let's do it you know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Hi, I'm Jared Littner, and get ready for more tips and techniques on Bass Edge's The Edge. All right, we are back on The Edge, and our next guest is BSS Elite 
angler, and that is Mr. Mark Tucker. Mark, thanks once again for being part of The Edge. Thanks for having me, Aaron. You know, oftentimes when we're, when we're looking at bass fishing, you know, certainly there's a lot of things that, that play a significant role in your success on the water. But sometimes it's those little things that can ultimately produce a big result. Well, that's right, Aaron. You know, it, it all boils down to the confidence that you're putting into that bait. And the more you tinker with little baits and, and make adjustments to it, the more confidence builds up. Yeah, you know, and and I know you you've got numerous ones that you kind of employ, but you know, could we spend a little bit of time about talking about some of your top ones? You know, that you think that we could benefit from by you know adopting that into our arsenal. Oh, absolutely! A lot of my brush hogs, creature baits, jig head worms, everything I try to doctor up a little bit with the spike it dies. You know, mm-hmm. and I take a, a cotton swab, a Q-tip, and you can easily make any color adjustments you need right there in the boat. And I prefer, especially on my uh, critter crawls and that on the jigs, I paint all the pinchers, you know, black and orange that resemble a crawdad to the T. And that kind of little stuff, it gives the bait more contrast and, and a little murky water, and it just makes it look more realistic. And you can do that with any bait you want. I mean, orange, black, and blue, and some chartreuse dye, you can, you can have an array of colors. So what's your benchmark for choosing what color to use when? Depends on the water color. If I've got pretty clear water, I shy away from coloring the baits too much. I keep them more natural. Okay. If I get into a situation where the water is a little bit stained, I can see down maybe a foot, I really like to doctor up the pinchers on a jig. And what I do is I just take and open up the orange dye, dip the pinchers in, just vaguely dip them, and then take a Q-tip, dip it in the black, and then color around the orange with some black, and it really makes it look realistic. The jig head worms, I pretty much most all the time use chartreuse just on the tip of the tail of that worm. The key is after you dip it, I like to take a little bitty worm rattle and stick it in the tail of that worm because in in low light conditions or a little stained water or a little deeper in the brush, you can shake that jig head worm and, and it will draw the fish over to that worm where they see it better. So uh, it's kind of sending off that vibration to where it's going to attract them into it. Right. And really, like, at takeoffs in the morning, if you're catching some fish on that jig head worm, in the morning times, you know, it's hard for them to see that little bitty worm. Right. So you need to put a rattle in there so they can hear it. But the key is you have to put that rattle in after you dip the tail in the short truce. You can't put the rattle in, then dip it in the short truce, or it'll fall out. Gotcha. So that's that's kind of the key there. Do you do any modifications with your hard baits or your crank baits or you know things like that? You know, there's some things. Uh, Wilson Frazier has got some good products out that enhances. It's called Slick Side, and it really helps putting it on DD22s and fat-free shad. And you get about another foot or so of depth out of that bait because it's got such slick sides on it. It's kind of like waxing your crankbait to get it deeper, and uh, and I will do that, and it's also got a little bit of scent to it, but for the most part, there's some other things that you can also do, and, and uh, you really have to experiment with it. Uh, some guys out in South Carolina, North Carolina have turned me on to this, that drilling a hole in some bait and adding some weight to it mm-hmm. so you can cast it farther, where it doesn't hamper the action of the bait and you can fiddle with that stuff but it's real tedious you know you really have to have a couple baits there and have a place to throw them to see exactly how much weight you need to put in them the other thing is you can also boil a pot of hot water and stick a dd22's bill in there 
and bend it down a little deeper to where we're at a dive a little deeper. Well, and I know from from experience, you know, it's kind of like we we need to throw the disclaimer out there. Don't try this at home type deal. But right. you know, after you you know maybe by getting some baits that aren't your favorite or some cheaper baits to kind of experiment on until you get the the hang of it. I know you know on the jerk baits, and you remember this too, Mark. We used to actually take the inside rattles and then heat up like a nail, a finish nail, and actually peg the rattle that was inside of of that jerk bait towards the back so that it couldn't roll forward it would set actually set exactly. more level but you know you're taking a $15 and $18 exactly. jerk bait <laughs> it's a little harder to, yeah. to, to do and and that's why you know you really have to want to be able, I mean that has to be one of your go-to baits that you really want to try to trickster it out right you know do you get much into you know the hooks or any of the terminal tackle side of things on adjustments you know, I once in a while, I mean, I'm not a real big fan of changing all my hooks out to red. I will in certain applications, but I change all my crankbait hooks out, and I, lo- I love using the EWG Gamagatsus on big crankbait, uh, DD-22s, fat-free sheds, that type of stuff. On my balsa bees and that, I use just a regular 4 round round-bitten Gamagatsu. I- I've had my best luck with those hooks. Everybody wants to put bigger hooks on those baits. The problem is you put bigger hooks on and they and they get hung up more often. You know, I would rather keep the same size hook on there so I can get it through the cover. And, I mean, if you're going to lose a fish, you're going to lose a fish. I mean, the biggest thing is if you throw it up there with bigger hooks and you get hung up in a brush pile, you've done ruined your chances. Exactly. And, and by switching to the EWG, I'm assuming that stands for extra wide gap, is that yes. to try and keep you know, keep the hookup percentage better? It seems like the way those hooks are designed, I mean, they really get the fish where it counts, Mm -hmm. and I don't lose near as many fish as opposed to a round bend hook. Now, that's on my deep diving crankbaits. I mean, all the DD-22s, the fat-free sheds, I've really found a big percentage in in the hookup ratio on those hooks. Now, I don't know, I haven't tried it much, but the EWG hooks on like a Bagley's and that, they're just too small of a hook that the fish really has to get the bait in their mouth really good to get them on that. So that's why I prefer just staying with the, the standard round bend treble hooks on those. Sure. I don't have no problem with that. Well, Mark, I, I can tell you one thing. I could sit here and talk all day about these little adjustments because like we, <laughs> we've, we've already talked about, those can often be uh, you know the difference maker at the end of the day. But unfortunately, we are once again out of time. Again, thanks for your time. It's always a pleasure to have you on here and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. I can't wait, Aaron. Thank you so much. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. Well, Aaron, before we get away from here today, I think we need to give something away. Well, we do have a lucky winner, and it goes out to Joe from Shorewood, Illinois, who wins a collection of mother's polishes, waxes, and cleaners for his boat, truck, or whatever else he might want to use that on. So congratulations, Joe. You are this week's winner. And just a reminder for everyone else, make sure that uh, you get entered into the 
giveaway contest that uh, you can do that through BassEdge.com. Well, Steve, who do we have up next week? One of our good old friends from right here in Missouri, Dion Edmonds, is going to be with us. And we're also going to get a visit from Ricky Bodsford at Bass East. Well, I look forward to that because every time that Dion speaks, it is well worth listening to. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but be sure to join us for this show on the Outdoor Channel, where Bass Edge is seen three times weekly at 8 a.m. Thursdays, 9 a.m. Fridays, and Saturday afternoons at 2.30 all Eastern Time. For the latest Bass Edge information, merchandise, and for an opportunity to win prizes and ask the pro questions, be sure and log on to BassEdge.com. For Steve Brigman, I am Aaron Martin, and we look forward to seeing you again next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Megaware Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.